Hello and welcome to Cordial with Brett Crosley and Tom Bennett, the podcast where we mix and contemplate cordial conversations about the world, the people in it and their work. Welcome back to another episode of the Cordial Podcast. In this quick episode, I will be joined by Professor Ross Garneau. If the name sounds familiar, it's probably because a couple of years ago here in Australia, Ross authored the Garneau Climate Change Review, which made a bit of a splash and in my household, it certainly was a household name. Professor Garneau is an esteemed economist and is currently a Professor Emeritus at the University of Melbourne in the Faculty of Business and Economics. He is also currently the chairman of Sunshot Industries and is also a director of Zen Energy. His career spans many decades and his work has been conducted in academia, policy, where he has advised governments, most notably the Bob Hawke government, and his work has also been prevalent in the business world. Hope you enjoy this quick episode. All right, well, welcome to the show today, Ross. It's really exciting to have you on and Really honoured that you've um, carved out some time in your day to talk to me. Very good to be with you, Brett, at this uh, important time for the world uh, with the meeting still going on in Glasgow. That's right. Yeah, it's an exciting time. Uh, Renewables and carbon is very much on the agenda, um, no matter which newspaper you read, which is fantastic. I thought maybe today we, we would start with um, your big work that is starting to guide a lot of the conversation. I'm starting to hear it in the webinars I sit into, the articles I read, um, and that's about hydrogen. So I'd like to maybe just unpack the big work that you did put together, Superpower. Um, it's a fantastic book, um, and it's out there on most booksellers if anybody's interested, where you kind of laid out your vision for a roadmap, perhaps even, for Australia um, and the role it can play in the renewable economy global economy as well. So maybe um, it'd be a good starting point if you can maybe, why did you pick hydrogen? Well, it's not just hydrogen. Um, uh, the, the starting point of Australia's opportunity is uh, that we've got uh, the best combinations of renewable energy resources in the world. Renewable energy is mainly capital plus the natural resource. Uh, operating costs are very small. This makes it very different from a from coal-based energy or um, gas-based energy, where a major part of costs is the continual supply of the raw material. The sun and the wind come free. Uh, so it's the initial capital expenditure that, that is the main cost. Uh, capital is much cheaper in developed than developing countries. Australia has by far the best combinations of solar and wind resources uh, per capita even absolutely, but uh, certainly per capita in the developed world. This means that when the whole world is producing energy from renewable sources, uh, uh, Australian energy costs should be the lowest in the world. We can muck it up, but do it properly, and that's the case. (laughs) And that gives us uh, a huge competitive advantage in zero emissions uh, processing and manufacturing. Uh, we've also got uh, another natural resource that's very uh, valuable in the zero emissions economy, and that is um, lots of uh, opportunities to grow biomass, increase carbon in soils and plants, uh, grow biomass sustainably for industry. We've got by far the developed world's largest uh, 
per capita endowment of woodlands uh, and developed countries are richer in uh, per capita uh, endowments of woodlands and developing. So it's another big advantage for Australia. And there's going to be a very high premium on uh, uh, capture of carbon in soils and plants, but also in growing biomass uh, as a source of uh, carbon and hydrocarbons for chemicals, uh, chemical industries. Um, uh, industrial inputs were once supplied by coal and oil and uh, gas, so the whole of the world's plastics industry. So they will all have to be supplied by something else, so that's biomass. Uh, really the same uh, uh, origin as the coal and oil and gas, but uh, missing out the, uh, uh, the few hundred million years of uh, uh, of natural processing. Natural um, storage as well. <laughs> uh, so uh, Australia's advantage is a very large one. Um, now, we are by far the world's largest source of minerals requiring energy-intensive processing. Of all the steel that's made in the world, most of that uh, comes from uh, a processing of iron ore, a uh, reduction of iron ore, removing the uh, oxygen from iron oxide. Uh, we produce about 40% of the world's iron ore. China produces half of the world's steel. 60% of their iron ore comes from us. That's a very emissions-intensive process as it's currently conducted. You, you take uh, uh, coke made from coal, uh, you use that to reduce the, um, the iron oxide. The, uh, uh, the carbon in, in the coke uh, pulls out the oxygen uh, from the iron oxide goes into the air as carbon dioxide, leaves iron metal. And that process alone, the conversion of the iron ore into metal, uh, accounts for about 7% of global emissions. That, that compares with Australia's total emissions being just a touch above 1%. So get rid of 100% of uh, Australia's emissions tomorrow and uh, we get rid of one-third of the amount of emissions we would get by using our rich natural resources uh, to, to, to make iron here rather than having it processed using um, coal in other countries. Uh, it's not just uh, iron ore, but iron ore is the biggest one. We're potentially a very large producer of silicon. Silicon, uh, silicon is uh, the, big, the biggest of the, the growth metals of the zero emissions economy because... Um, uh, it, it's the essential input, silicon chips into into photovoltaic uh, equipment and and also uh, uh, into into computers. Uh, and uh, uh, it's made from silicon oxide, which is sand or quartz. Australia's got lots of that, uh, and huge amounts of energy. And uh, we'll be the low cost source for energy. So at the moment, most of the world's silicon, pure silicon is made in China, but using very expensive uh, energy, mostly made from coal. Uh, so uh, in the zero emissions world economy, we're the natural place for that. Uh, so other critical minerals that are used in uh, batteries in uh, other parts of the um, photovoltaic panels in, in wind turbines. Uh, Australia's got a lot of raw materials. They'll be growing strongly in demand. We're the natural place not only for producing a signif significant proportion of the mineral, but also uh, for processing them. All right. And how does hydrogen fit into this picture that you're painting for us? Now, hydrogen is uh, is an alternative for uh, carbon in many of the uh, processing uh, industries. For example, 
if you don't use uh, coal and coke to take the oxygen out of iron oxide, iron ore, you could use hydrogen. The chemical process there uh, is that the hydrogen reacts with the oxygen in the uh, iron oxide and the, and the waste isn't carbon dioxide, it's water, N- nice pure water, uh, uh, and uh, we could do with a little bit more of that. And uh, that's the low-cost way of, of uh, making iron metal in the zero-emissions world economy, so it's a natural for Australia. A number of other industrial processes uh, that currently use oil and gas or, or coal can use uh, hydrogen, for example, ammonia. Ammonia tremendously important as a base for fertilizers because it's a source of nitrogen, a central component of growing plants. Um, uh, the, the green revolution the world went through in the 60s and 70s that hugely increased global productivity for agriculture. Uh, one of the essential inputs on that was um, nitrogen uh, uh, fertilizers. Well, how we've made nitrogen, it's an old process, it was used by the Germans to, to uh, in the First World War to give them a technological edge in armaments that uh, uh, you, you uh, take um, hydrogen and uh, with, with heat and uh, pressure, you mix it with the nitrogen in the air. The air is, 90, is 80% nitrogen and you end up with NH3, the, uh, a molecule that includes hydrogen and nitrogen. Just use a lot of energy. Uh, to convert the uh, hydrogen with the nitrogen in the air into ammonia. Uh, now, the hydrogen historically has come from coal or uh, gas. Uh, that's a highly emissions-intensive process. The alternative is to make hydrogen by uh, electrolysis, uh, using electricity to split the um, uh, the water molecule into hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, the, the oxygen is a has some uses, but not in the quantities that will be produced in the zero emissions economy. Yeah. So it's either used or it's a waste, and uh, but a harmless waste, a bit more, a little bit more oxygen in the air doesn't hurt. And then you use a zero emissions hydrogen to make the ammonia. Well, that's that's a that, that's potentially a huge industry, and uh, Australia is a natural home for that for fertilisers, but also uh, the original use. Uh, of the, it's called the Haber-Bosch process after the two Germans who uh, invented it and applied the technology more than a century ago. The other use of uh, hydrogen uh, and ammonia uh, out of the uh, ammonia out of the Haber-Bosch process is to uh, produce ammonium nitrate, which is the base of many explosives. Uh, we use huge amounts of that in the mining industry. Other countries do too. So, so, so that's another whole industry based on hydrogen. Now, hydrogen uh, can be used as a fuel, uh, an alternative to uh, gas or coal or oil in an electricity generator, playing the same sort of role. It can be used as an alternative gas in a peaking generator. Uh, it can be uh, used to run a car to... Uh, to run an electric motor that runs an electric car. So uh, but the hydrogen car is really another form of electric vehicle. But instead of having a battery, you could have a little, um, if you've got hydrogen on board, you can use the hydrogen to run an electric motor and that can run the car. So that's hydrogen's an alternative uh, transport fuel. Uh, for uh, uh, hydrogen's rather difficult to transport. Um, it's the smallest uh, atom, the smallest molecule, so it seeps out between the atoms and molecules of standard steel. Uh, so you need special materials. Um, 
which are more expensive than standard steel. We transport gas internationally, methane, by uh, liquefying it, and that requires a lot of uh, energy uh, to reduce temperature down to the levels at which it liquefies. In the case of methane, about minus 153. Well, in the case of of hydrogen, you have to take it right down almost to absolute zero. Uh, uh, you have to take it down to about minus 253 degrees. That, that requires a huge amount of energy. The closer you get to absolute zero, the more energy you use. And you end up using nearly half the energy in the hydrogen to liquefy. And then it's expensive to transport it. So you, you could make uh, renewable energy here, renewable hydrogen here, and export it. It would be much cheaper to make it here than in uh, Japan or Korea or Germany or uh, or France, but uh, but it'd be more more than twice as expensive once it gets there. Uh, similarly, you you could uh, make renewable energy here and put it in a submarine transmission cable, a high voltage uh, direct current cable. Uh, they work under the water. We've got one going from Tasmania to Australia. There's lots now running th- across the uh, the Baltic. I'm talking about a big fella uh, across the Mediterranean, they've got it in across bays in in China and Japan, uh, but it's not cheap. Uh, there's a big project in Australia to uh, the Sun Cable project to export electricity, renewable electricity, uh, leaving from Darwin, uh, ending up first of all in Singapore. Well, that that can be done. It probably will be done, uh, but it's not going to be cheap. It's going to be uh, electricity is going to cost more than twice as much. Uh, in Singapore as a cost to produce. So Australia uh, will be an exporter of um, of uh, renewable energy directly, electricity, will be an exporter of hydrogen, uh, either liquefied or converted into ammonia, uh, and then, then the, the through another process, the hydrogen can be extracted from the ammonia when you get to the other end. Ammonia is easier to transport than, um, than liquid hydrogen. But it's going to be much cheaper in Australia. And so it's going to be more economic to use the hydrogen here in Australia for processing our minerals and for making ammonia and doing other things uh, than it is to use it overseas. But, but hydrogen's not that. So that's the basis of the story. We've got a large advantage in manufacturing goods that use hydrogen. In a way, we didn't have a large advantage in the fossil fuel economy where the world's biggest exporter of coal, of metallurgical coal that's used to make steel, but it doesn't cost much to transport that, to put it on a huge boat, uh, by the t- uh, huge economies of scale. By the time it gets to Corbet or Shanghai and into a steel mill, uh, the costs are no higher. In fact, they're a little bit lower than putting it on a smaller boat to take it around to Wyala, uh, to a steel mill in South Australia. So we've got no industrial competitive advantage from having the metallurgical coal, but because our hydrogen or ammonia will be much more expensive in uh, uh, in Japan or Korea or China or Germany or uh, France or Britain than, than in Australia, uh, there'll be an economic pressure to uh, use it at home, at home. So that's the story of hydrogen, but it's only part of the superpower opportunity and uh, I tell the whole story in the book. That's right. Solar and wind are naturally in abundance here as well, and they're a big part of your renewable hydrogen vision. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely worth a read. I guess, so now that you've added so much nuance and colour to the story of hydrogen, something that's often lacking in the public debate about hydrogen, you often get these one-off lines of, um, throwaway lines of, you know, 
people are unsure about the value proposition of hydrogen. Some some throwaway line like that. And and yet when you discuss it, there's multiple industries and levels of opportunity here for Australia for taking on this resource and, and building up our capability. So I guess my, my question to you is about the business case. Obviously, the vision is fantastic. It's an awesome vision. As a young person in Australia, I, I feel invested in it without actually having done anything yet. Um, I feel like it's the it's something we've been lacking my entire years going through school and university. I, I've, I can see that this is what we've been missing. But the issue I, I can see is that, like you mentioned, it's been easier for us to just put our raw material on a boat and it will be cheaper than developing something locally. And a big part of your vision is onshoring all the stuff that we've offshored for decades. So I guess there is that investment of transitioning to hydrogen as an energy source, but then there's that secondary investment of building up those capabilities, building up those skills, building up in, in, in all those industries will be difficult um, and perhaps more so. So maybe if we could discuss that, whether that's in the remit of what you've looked at, but yeah, let's just kick that idea around a little bit. I know it's a bit, a bit of a pokey, pokey subject. Uh, well, the, the, the main uh, problem is one of mindset. Uh, we think of ourselves as, as a quarry uh, and other people think of us as a quarry. Yeah. It wasn't always the case. Back in the 19th, early 20th century, uh, a lot of the top innovation in uh, processing minerals uh, happened in Australia. Nearly all base metal ores, lead, zinc, copper, silver, uh, are now um, extracted uh, from ores uh, through a flotation process. Well, that was first used in Broken Hill. And a lot of processing was, was first done in Australia, uh, Broken Hill, and then uh, they established uh, smelting operations using the new technology at Port Pirie in South Australia, closer to Port Pirie than, than to uh, any other port, uh, closer than taking it back to Sydney. So uh, that, that was an important part of our history uh, in the early days of... Um, uh, of iron ore production in Australia, uh, we, we were one of the world's low-cost producers of steel and uh, made our own and exported some. Uh, big story uh, of how we lost competitiveness and capacity in those things. Uh, part of the story was Australian policy, Australian protection, uh, which raised the cost level of Australia, made us less um, alert to international opportunity, made us more inward-looking and... Um, uh, and we stopped being an exporter of anything sophisticated. Protection helped us to be, become mainly an exporter of raw materials and uh, farm products. We, we were starting to get out of that uh, with the removal of protection, uh, the reforms of the Hawke government that got rid of most Australian protection. We were becoming a much more externally oriented economy and growth, with very strong growth in manufactured goods and in in uh, services. I tell that story in my book, Dog Days, uh, published in 2013. But I've been telling that story uh, for a long time. Uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I work with Bob Hawke on, on putting all of that in place. Between uh, 83, 1983 and, uh, to, and early this century, we had compound annual growth in the volume of manufactured exports and service exports, more than 10% per annum. Uh, but that was killed off by the China resources boom. Well, killed off by our management of the, the China resources boom. didn't have to be this way, but a huge increase in export prices for raw materials 
we spent the money as it came in that took up the exchange rate, made everything uncompetitive except exporting minerals. <laughs> uh, and uh, that killed off the growth of, of those industries. So uh, we, we went into decline, not only for uh, processed minerals and manufacturers, but uh, uh, but also um, uh, processed farm products. Uh, we became a very big exporter of wine between in the export period, uh, 83 to 2003. But, but uh, with the rise in the real exchange rate, which, which reduced the, the the price of imported French wine and uh, increased the cost of Australian wine. And uh, uh, by uh, by two, 2012, we were drinking it all ourselves, plus a whole lot of imported stuff. Uh, so that's another story. But we mismanaged the China resources boom by spending all the revenue as it came mm. in. The uh, Howard Costello government runs budget surpluses for a few years and thought they were heroes for running budget surpluses, but the surpluses should have been five times as big uh, to insulate ourselves uh, from uh, from that rise in the real exchange rate and loss in competitiveness. A, a mining mindset is different from a uh, manufacturing and processing mindset. If you're involved in manufacturing and mining, you, you know uh, that your competitiveness comes from doing things cleverer than other people. If you're a miner, you uh, getting a monopoly control of a valuable resource is, is the source of your competitiveness. Now, the resource is owned by state governments and then leased to uh, private companies. And so the business of the mining company is, first of all, to uh, to capture uh, the valuable resources and... Uh, make sure the government doesn't uh, extract the full value of what it's providing them uh, in taxation or uh, royalties. Uh, so uh, it's a very different mindset uh, and uh, companies that do very well at that uh, are often not the same companies that do very well uh, in uh, in the highly competitive manufacturing and processing industries where rents are not so important. You survive by by doing things better and having lower costs uh, uh, in what you do than, than, than other people. Of course, um, quality of management, technology uh, costs matter in mining, but, uh, but the first thing that matters is uh, access to the resource, so whereas uh, in manufacturing, uh, how well you do it, how cheaply you do it is what it's all about. So our economy needs to move away, or especially the the quarry economy, as maybe you'd put it, um, <laughs> needs to shift from a rent-seeking only economy, which is very important that we do seek out those that access. And then once we have the access, then we need is now, uh, and we should have been doing this for decades, um, improving our ability to process and do things with it. I guess that leads to my next question. And it's kind of a question that kind of occurs to me as I read Superpower was that the world that you envisioned for the future um, where superpower is, is becomes realized is one in which uh, we shift away from this global economy that's fought on wages, where it's about the individuals and their wage costs uh, leading to the international competitive advantages um, that we see play out today, like, for example, car manufacturing. I guess in your vision, it's it's about the lowest cost of energy. Yeah. Well, I, I don't uh, draw that dichotomy. Mm. No, no, you uh, don't. I, I don't talk about cost of wages being what it's all about yeah. now. 
uh, impact in trade amongst developed countries, comparative advantage in manufacturing uh, doesn't depend on wage differences. Australia's not a high-wage country. We've had wage stagnation uh, since 2013, together with uh, depreciation of the real exchange rate. Our wage costs are not as high as as uh, the United States, uh, not as high as a lot of countries in Europe, you know, higher than Japan. Now, uh, in very labour-intensive goods, goods that uh, have got a lot of labour, not much technology, not much capital, like making shirts and underpants and shoes and toys, uh, that labour does determine competitiveness and those things are best done in poor developing countries. Uh, and that's how China, well, first of all, that's how Japan got going uh, in post-war uh, reconstruction, uh, export of those simple manufacturers full of labour in the 50s and 60s. But by the 60s, uh, labour had become scarce in Japan, wages were rising, and all those industries went offshore, first of all, to smaller developing countries in Asia, Korea, uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore. Uh, later on, uh, mainly to China, and China became the, the, the factory of the world, uh, we're based initially on very low labour costs. But since 2005, labour started to be increasingly scarce in China, uh, and wages have been rising. And uh, uh, and so you're starting to get uh, in Shanghai markets uh, uh, shirts made in Cambodia, made in Bangladesh, often by Chinese companies who've uh, gone gone offshore. So labour uh, and uh, uh, at the top end of manufacturing, uh, sophisticated manufactured products uh, using a lot of capital or technology, they, the, the uh, labour doesn't determine who does those. You know, Germany is uh, uh, after China, the biggest exporter of manufactured goods in the world. Uh, Labour costs are not cheap in Germany. Germany does it because uh, it's got first-rate training in trade skills, uh, first-rate education in education, a long industrial tradition of uh, taking new ideas and turning them into industrial products. We talked about Haber-Bosch for a for ammonia, well, that was just one of hundreds of them. Yeah, thousands even. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they are always the heroes of VET, and and they're they've got a different culture too. Like here in Australia, we've got a two-speed um, education system where it appears you've got the high-end um, university sector, which is very elite in international standards. We really punch above our weight, and we seem to be pushing our kids through that system at the expense of the VET. And culturally, it seems to be not as highly valued, despite the obvious advantages of having a really high-skilled vet sector out. Yeah. yeah. Well, we, we we need both, and um, and we've let we've let skills training decline. We we, we weren't always as uh, bad as we are now. Hmm. Victoria used to be pretty good. Uh, the privatisation of the vets led to a declining quality. Hmm. Fifteen years ago, whenever it was, ten years ago. Uh, and then the society hasn't placed the value on them that, that, that is warranted. So that's one of the changes that we've got to go through. We we need um, a stronger policy recognition of the value of innovation, uh, a lot of innovation required to make all these things happen. None of the technologies are required are, are new technologies, but uh, first uh, companies to apply them run into a lot of practical issues. You don't get enough innovation unless you've got uh, public fiscal support for the innovator. 
We do some of that through uh, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, but the scale is tiny compared with the scale of that sort of support in Germany or Britain or France or Korea or Japan or China or the United States. The slogan of the current government, Commonwealth government, is uh, technology, not taxes. But compared with the rest of the world, we're we're neither technology nor taxes. Uh, (laughs) We just don't put the resources into uh, uh, supporting the new industry that uh, other other and more successful uh, manufacturing countries do. Okay. So we need scale and we need um, a serious investment. But, but, but I think we can do it. Mm. We're actually pretty good at innovation, although we don't help the innovator very much. Uh, yeah. I mean, we created, didn't, didn't um, some Australian make the, um, that, that rapid antigen test? It was Australian, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, right from the beginning, we've done lots of things. The first, the first production line was the Australian shearing shed. <laughs> I've not heard that. There you go. I like that. I'm going to start using that. Okay, mm. excellent. Well, I know, I know, Ross, we've gone a little bit over time. Um, so thank you very much for being so generous with it too. Um, it was fantastic to meet you, and I wish you all the best. I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. Okay, good, Brett. Nice to talk to you, and uh, keep in touch. Bye. All right. Thank you, Ross. See you, there. Bye. Well, Tom, how was that? Look, <laughs> I learned a lot of things in this, but uh, I mean, I know that you were a little bit under time constraints in having the conversation with Ross there, but maybe can you give a little bit of context to the listener and myself about who Ross is and what he does outside of being a writer? Yeah, fair enough. So Ross is uh, an academic, first and foremost. He was He's semi-retired now, as I understand it. So he's a professor emeritus. Uh, so he's not a full-time professor, but he, back in the day, was a professor of economics at the University of Melbourne. And during his time there, he did lots of research on energy and he worked a lot with the government, particularly Bob Hawke, which he mentioned there earlier in the piece. Um, so he did lots of work setting up different systems and collaborating with governments and also teaching lots of students as well. So he would have supervised lots of PhDs, lots of master's theses, and he's also started a bunch of companies. So he's currently the chairman of, uh, I think it's Zen Energy. I might be wrong there. I can verify later in the in the blog. And uh, he's, he's director of another, I think it's Sunshot Energy as well. Uh, he's also recently stepped down from a bunch of uh, directorships uh, and senior positions in leadership positions in public listed companies. He was part of a gold um, company on that was listed on the stock exchange. So he's an experienced management professional uh, in the sense that he's been a board member and a director of a number of companies, publicly listed and private companies, and professor and uh, lecturer, writer, contributed to public opinion, um, to the debate around renewable energy, so he's a man of many talents and pursuits. Done it all. Yeah. He has. Economist. Yeah, an economist. That's right. And I think in this episode, we probably got a glimpse of his prowess as a lecturer. So it was less of a conversation than previous episodes, partly due to the time constraints. But also naturally, if you Google uh, Ross Gano, particularly get some video results on YouTube, he often has hour, <laughs> two hour, three hour long videos of him addressing someone on nice. a topic nice little soliloquy <laughs> <laughs> yeah so he yeah he's an excellent talker 
Yes, and I, I think that was quite evident to be backed up with a, a significant knowledge base behind him as well. That's for sure. That's right. So he's an economist, but uh, in this episode, he talked a lot about the science and the and the history and the processes. So he knows he knows he knows more than just the numbers. Indeed, he does. So yeah, I think just getting into to more of the context of the actual episode, you were right in saying that he outlined the vision of hydrogen and the economic vision also makes sense in the eyes of the world's current priority around uh, zero emissions um, for, for, for most countries, I would say. Yeah. Um, you're more versed than me on this topic, but can you just touch a little bit on sort of how hydrogen as a technology is progressing in the world? Oh, it's more of a scientific question, but hydrogen at the moment, it, it's a way to store energy, right? Mm. So we, uh, it's a chemical process. Uh, it's highly energy intensive. So the Haber-Bosch method is a way of creating ammonia. Mm-hmm. And ammonia is a, is a way that hydrogen is stored. Right. Right. Uh, or ammonia is an output or something like that. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not entirely uh, the expert here, but that is roughly, it's right along those lines. And so what, what's happened with renewable energy, which Ross uh, aptly stressed at my first question about, you know, why hydrogen? And he said, well, it's not just hydrogen, it's hydrogen and renewables. Is when you create these processes or put them into action, um, to create ammonia or all these ways of storing hydrogen or using hydrogen to store energy. You used to use, you know, coal and, you know, regular fossil fuels to fuel the process. Um, but now where, with you know, the way technology progressed with solar and, and wind and hydro is that you're able to use these renewable sources of energy to conduct those processes. So you can yeah. have green hydrogen. There's also blue hydrogen is where you use gas in the process so natural gas which is in abundance here in australia and canada and the united states whether economically so or not is a different question so yeah so there's so there's a real opportunity here in australia where we have you know abundance of these natural resources that we can mass produce for the world at the lowest cost of production theoretically green right. hydrogen theoretically blue and green um, and therefore we could you know fill tankers of uh, hydrogen or ammonia it would be the safest way to do it. You would fill these tankers of ammonia and ship them across the world so that when you're in Brazil and you're milling steel or you're producing cars, uh, you can use the, that ammonia to fuel the production. And that way, Australia is using its natural uh, renewable resources to fuel the world. Right. Okay. That that makes yeah. a little bit more sense. I mean, it, it could probably be drawn out from sort of some of the assumptions in the interview there but how you've said it there is is a little bit easier for me to palette uh yeah fair enough i've also simplified so there will be errors in there the engineers listening (laughs) might you know well it's not that not that simple but noted uh (laughs) but yeah it's main main, kind of the gist and the other thing he was talking about was onshoring which i found very interesting onshoring yeah that's one thing that's offshoring yeah, that's one thing that I've heard multiple times and probably going back a few years now. Is, and I guess the, the use of the example of natural gas being used in the process of creating steel from iron ore. And we've got uh-huh. both of the raw products abundantly available in Australia. And yet we, we export both of those products to do one process mm-hmm. and then re-import that. And sort of theoretically... 
the idea that both could be used within Australia onshoring that process would give us a leg up and yeah, create a significant industry and economy for us in terms of making steel, albeit a little bit more expensive than if you were doing it in somewhere like China or, or Brazil or wherever. Yeah. When you look at it like that, uh, yeah, it makes it, it really, the mind boggles uh, why <laughs> we ever let go of <laughs> uh, our capacity to do it locally with all our natural resources here on, on, on shore. But I think, and I know Ross was quick to um, say that he didn't draw this dichotomy in the book, which he didn't, but uh, it's more the implications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the world in the 19th and 20th century, uh, and the century's just gone, is that uh, we were competing on labor cost. The reason globalization worked was because we were trying to find where can we produce goods at high and low quality, high and low volume at the cheapest cost. And so management and capital was constantly searching the globe for that you know, low cost of production to maximize profit. And um, so we had this big global marketplace uh, fueled by fossil fuels, which, you know, it worked uh, for better or worse. But then what's what Ross, I, I guess my, my reading into Ross's vision is that when fossil fuels, so fossil fuels are very portable and they're kind of scattered around the earth, right? So there's mm-hmm. you know, oil here and there's coal there and it's kind of all everywhere. What, what Ross points out is that with renewable energy and with hydrogen being a portable form of energy like oil, is that you have to look for places that have the land and that has the natural resources that will that fuel renewable energy trends, um, that, that transformation process. So like think solar power, you need lots of sun and lots of space to have all these panels. Mm-hmm. So where, where in the world is there lots of space and lots of sun? You know, you, there's not a lot of places, but Australia is definitely Australia. And, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, wind, where, where is there lots of space and where is there lots of wind? Well, Australia, we're, we're a huge coastal continent uh, mm-hmm. all around Australia. It's very, very windy. So you've got like two pieces of the puzzle there very much uh, in Australia. But the, the, the underlying question there is where, where can you do this and where's the cheapest place to do it? Mm-hmm. And because we can do it in Australia at such scale, and it's naturally abundant, the sun and the wind, and water, mind you, salt water for hydrogen. So we've got like an abundance of all the three pieces on tap, on hand. We are undoubtedly, if we get it right, as Ross said, there's a risk that we won't, we are undoubtedly capable and the opportunity's there to be a low-cost producer of energy. Mm-hmm. So if you're in Japan where land is scarce, there's you know it, very long winters with not a lot of sun and Scandinavia likewise in their winter. You know, there, there are these places that are kind of smaller, uh, less sun, less wind, that for them to produce this energy might cost a lot because the land is very valuable. Um, mm-hmm. They haven't got much of it. The sun is very scarce and the wind is uh, maybe not always blowing. So there's like all these factors that make it cheaper for some, more expensive for others, mm-hmm. right? And that's the world we're heading into is, with COVID and everyone's trying to produce their own um, more and more, like have that security of producing your own. Less globalized sort of view. Yeah, yeah, in a way, a retreat from that, mm-hmm. uh, that ultimately global world, which you're very, very close to achieving. Yeah, I'm ranting a bit, but my point is that um, this world where we world gone by, which is where we're looking for the cheapest labor cost, energy costs are relatively the same everywhere. Like we're mm-hmm. all trading on the petrodollar. Whereas now we're heading to this world where, that's less important. Petrol and oil and coal, the price for everyone is 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 irrelevant there, and it's more like how 
how can you produce energy at a low cost? And with all the machinery and automation coming through, the technology is advancing so that the labor is less important. Still mm-hmm. important, but it's less important, less like, important. than it was yeah. back in the day, if you see. And mm-hmm. so it's becoming a world where we're competing on energy cost. Yes. Um, yeah, no, there were a lot of things in there that we could unpack a little bit further. But long story short, I think, yeah, <laughs> one of the, the, the main point was if you have access to those resources, these natural resources to create renewable energy, there is your competitive advantage right there. That's right. That's right. And that's that's what it comes down to. Yeah. And, and, and what Ross and I touched on at the end was that having that conviction, right, like what you just said was a conviction that is not yet through the economy, not yet through society. Like we haven't quite committed to that. Mm-hmm. Once we have that conviction, the next thing is to build the economy around that, right? At the moment, our economy is kind of built around digging stuff out of the ground and getting it out as quickly as possible. Like that's what we've built it around. Yeah. Very low skill. The quarry. Yeah, the quarry. Mm-hmm. Um, the transformation process is nil. So now we have the opportunity, let's, let's kind of gear up and let's find a way to use our resources and offer the world something something low cost mm-hmm. and environmentally sound absolutely yeah set us up for the future that's right it's it's definitely more of a long-term thinking than a short-term thinking which i know i know wasn't necessarily the mindset that ross brought up but it's the mindset behind the business decisions i think that make hydrogen or investment in such heavy renewables within Australia is, is a, you know, a key thing for the future is the long-term impact that it will have on Australia. Yeah, yeah. You're spot on, like that long-term vision and, uh, yeah. I mean, not even our politicians are capable, this is not a cri- criticism, but are capable of thinking in the next 30 years. Like they could be, but they're beholden to a four-year election cycle. We're heading into election yeah. next year and it's like two elections mm-hmm. state in federal for, for me here in Victoria. Um, that you just, I can't see how you could run on it, like on a long-term vision for Australia. We're going to build up our industrial capability to service the world, right? Like that, that's a great thing to run on. Who, who wouldn't want that? Mm-hmm. Like that, this is the back, the next job for the next 30 years. But then, yeah, what happens when, you know, it takes five years to boot that up? Yeah. And you've got potentially two completely different administrations to use a North American word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're <laughs> right. So it's like so difficult at that political level because that's where it needs to begin mm-hmm. mm. absolutely yeah yeah uh cool brody well that was a short and sharp episode which is a little bit of a change up from our last few episodes going uh over an hour into an hour and a half so it's nice to to get a short and sharp one in here yeah definitely you know we won't always aim to have an hour and a half episode but it was nice to have a shorter one uh it would have been better to have more time with ross but you know such is life so we have another episode in the chamber. It's no, not no longer about energy, but it'll be uh, the professor of sorts. So that'll be fun. Yeah, it was a, it was a good episode, though, nevertheless. Yeah, absolutely. You and your academia world seems to be uh, taking hold here on the Cordial Podcast. And I'm just trying to just, the draw of the ivory tower. <laughs> trying to pull in a, a few other spices of the world. And, and <laughs> no, me too. I need to I need to spread my wings. We are as well. the yin and the yang, so it works out all right. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Happy days. Well, again, uh, cheeky plug on the socials, cordial.live is our website, at cordial.live on Instagram and cordial on LinkedIn. Check it out. Yep. Give us some love. I like to hear it. All righty, Brady. Appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. Have a good one.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Cordial. We will be back next time with a brand new guest to mix and contemplate more cordial conversations about the world, the people in it, and their work. If you happen to be enjoying our dolls and turns, listen to more cordial conversations on all major platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you still can't get enough of us, check out our website and Instagram. Both are at cordial.live. The links will be in the description.